was telling uh, Steve Main after first service how appropriate the words of that uh, song are to what I'm about to be talking about in my uh, sermon in the scripture today. I especially just so I don't want you to have to spend time reading those words right now, but I do want to call your attention to the last stanza. Still in our midst, this Lord of shop and marketplace prays through our work of body, mind, and strength, and calls us still to labor for the common good, led by his love that knows no breadth or length. If you don't get anything out of my sermon other than I'm reiterating that point today, then it's been a good labor that we've been engaged in here today. That really sums up what I'm about to be talking about. So let's get started by turning to the words that St. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans from the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 8. Listen now for God's word to you today. All right. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, we pray that you will grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand your word and your world this day as best we can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So happy Labor Day, everybody. Yeah, exactly. I heard one person respond, happy Labor Day. How about what do you say in response to something like that? Happy Labor Day. How many of you have ever said happy Labor Day before in your life? Raise your hand. I doubt it, right, because it's not something we say that often because usually we think of Labor Day, we think of it at all, it's just sort of the last lazy day of summer, right? And then It's another day off work tomorrow, and then we get back to the grind on the next day. But did you ever wonder where the idea of Labor Day comes from in the first place? Well, I'm going to tell you. It goes back to the uh, 19th century to the beginnings of the organized labor movement in the United States, and particularly to September the 5th, 1882. So it was on that day in New York City that the Central Labor Union had a march from City Hall in New York City to Reservoir Park in Union Square. And at the park, they had a massive uh, picnic with all sorts of people joining together and a concert. 
And then there were a series of speeches by leaders talking about the importance of establishing the eight-hour workday. Because back at the time, the average work week for a full-time manufacturing employee was 100 hours. That works out to about 14 hours per day, seven days a week. Imagine working from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. Doesn't leave a lot of time for anything else, does it? Certainly not for a Sabbath rest. So in 1894, Congress passed legislation creating Labor Day to be celebrated on the first Sunday in September to honor the dignity and value of paid labor. Now that was in uh, 1894. It wasn't until 48 years later in 1940 that the eight-hour workday and the 40-hour work week that we all take for granted actually became what we know today. And that points to the origins, at least, of some of our mixed feelings that we have about work and about labor, especially paid work and paid labor. So I was thinking of a song that might describe some of our feelings towards work, and I I recalled a very colorful song from the 1970s by a guy named Johnny Paycheck. And he, he wrote a song and sang it, With gusto, it went like this. You can take this job and... Okay, some of you know the words. I was not going to use that word. I was going to say deposit it. But a few years ago, there was a survey done that showed that 84% of American workers said that they were going to or wanted to look for a new job within the next 12 months. That number, of course, may include some people who'd rather not be working at all anyway, or it could include some people who just don't happen to like the particular employment they're in right now or their job, even if they like the sort of general thing that they do. But even so, if the survey is at all representative, that means that for the majority of American workers... Labor Day is not necessarily a time to revel in the dignity of work. It's a last gasp to get away from it. Now, of course, all of us, you know, want to escape things sometimes. It's not a bad thing at all to want to escape from from work or toil or anything else. I mean, the Bible even says that every seventh day we need to take a rest. We use the word Sabbath, which comes from the from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which literally means stop, stop. And that's great. God says we need to stop. Jesus says, come unto me, all who labor, and I will give you rest. And as Annie Lamott writes, almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, including you. It's pretty good, too. But what does the Bible have to say to us? What does the Bible have to teach to us about the dignity and value of labor, of work itself? Well, actually quite a lot. It starts in the very first verse of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 where God gets busy with the work of creation. Right? God says, 
Let there be light, and there is light. God separates the light from the darkness. God tames the primordial waters of, the, of chaos to bring forth land and, and vegetation and animals of all sorts. And, and all this work culminates in the creation of us, human beings, you and me. God's work culminates in what we might call the finest work product that God ever did. And we are not just God's work product. We are produced as workers to be apprentices to God, to work with God. And so God gives us a job right off the bat, right in Genesis chapter 2. God gives us dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle and all the wild animals of the earth. That's a big deal. We talk about, you know, finding meaningful employment. Our job, our calling, our vocation is to be co-creators and stewards of everything that God makes. Or at least that was the plan. Because then something kind of goes out of whack. In Christian theology, we call it the fall, the fall. Adam and Eve fall into the temptation and into the reality of sin, and they take the rest of us down with them, and God punishes them and all of their descendants. And part of the punishment involves kicking them out of the Garden of Eden and uh, putting a curse onto every other bit of earth itself. God says to the first humans, Through painful toil, you will eat food from the earth all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And by the sweat of your brow, you will work the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. That doesn't sound so great, does it? In other words, what had been a blessing from the beginning to participate with God in shaping all of creation, shaping the earth, has now turned into a sentence of hard labor. Historian Roger Hill writes this, the cultural norm placing a positive moral value on doing a good job because work has intrinsic value of its own was a relatively recent development in human history. Work, for much of the history of the human race, has been hard and degrading. The Hebrew belief system viewed work as a curse, devised by God explicitly to punish the disobedience and ingratitude of Adam and Eve. Numerous scriptures from the Old Testament, in fact, supported work, not from the stance that there was any joy in it, but only from the premise that it was necessary to prevent poverty and destitution. And that way of looking at work isn't just ancient history. It's a fascinating book that was written a few years ago by a sociologist named Barbara Ehrenreich called Nickel and Dimed, and she describes what it was like for her to live for a whole year on minimum wage. 
And she lived in the cheapest housing she could find, and she worked as a waitress and a maid and a nursing home maid and as somebody who sold things on the street corner. And she found that all this exhausting, back-breaking work didn't give her a great sense of what you might call occupational satisfaction. Often enough, one job wasn't enough for her to avoid homelessness. And that might give you a sense of why for many people in this world, especially those on the lower rungs of society, how those folks can see work itself as kind of the result of a curse. And you don't have to be a minimum wage worker to get that sense, too. Because many of us, by no means all of us, but for many of us, the value of work boils down essentially to either making enough money to live or finding a way to appear successful in the eyes of other people. As I say, that's not everybody doesn't fall into that category. I actually love my job, always have. But for a lot of people, that's how they see work. And I ask you, is that any way to live? And the problem is, as much as I love my job in the church, over the centuries, the Christian church has kind of played right into the idea of work as a curse. Just think of all the peasants and slaves and workers and everybody else who's been taught by the church over the centuries that, that this earthly life is little more than a veil of tears to be endured until you can escape it by getting away from this earth and into a place called heaven where you don't work. Or the church has tended to teach that, you know, really the only kind of work that really matters in life is work that is done in or for or by the church itself. It's a sacred vocation that counts, like being a minister or something, but not secular labor. But here's the thing. Even if the church has played into that idea for centuries, whether it did it intentionally or not, that is a total misunderstanding of what the Bible has to tell us about the dignity and value of labor and of work of so many different kinds of work. Yes, it can be tedious and pointless and dreary and oppressive. We all know that. We've all experienced that, whether you love your job or not. Work can get you down. But it can also be, and it should be, so much more than that. In the middle of the Second World War, the whole idea of what it meant to work for a living underwent a huge, profound change, right? What people had assumed before the whole world seemingly went to war about work was formed by earlier attitudes and then uh, in the Depression when people were losing their jobs and all these kinds of things. And then in the war, apparently everybody worked together for a common purpose, even if it was hard. There was a sense of meaning and purpose to what we were doing. 
And so in that context, the, the British detective story writer, um, uh, Dorothy Sayers, she wrote an amazing essay that I encourage anyone to read. It, it's online. It's about four or five pages long. It's in some books, uh, collected editions of her essays as well. Dorothy Sayers, she wrote this essay called Why Work in the Context of the Second World War. And in it, she does an amazing thing. She tries to reclaim the idea of work, of labor, of paid work and paid labor. Reclaim the idea of what God intends for it from the beginning rather than what it has become in the eyes of mankind. And she defines work as this. From the Christian perspective, work is a creative activity undertaken for the love of the work itself. She goes on to write this. Made in God's image, the human being should make things as God makes them for the sake of doing well a thing that is well worth doing. For the sake of doing well a thing that is well worth doing. So work is, or it should be, the full expression of the worker's faculties, the thing in which he or she finds spiritual, mental, and bodily satisfaction and the medium in which he or she offers himself to God. That's saying a lot. And it's it's basically saying the same thing as what Paul is writing in his letter to the Romans about work and labor and your purpose in life, what God has made you to do. Paul says that God has given each one of you, each one of us, gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now, in Greek, the word gifts is charisma. Charisma. Which means that no matter what you have thought the whole of your life, I can promise you that every single one of you has charisma. The Bible tells you so. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. Paul says that we are all gifted. Some of us as leaders, some as teachers, some as prophets, some as transmitters of wisdom, some as generous stewards, some as ministers, some as caregivers, some as skilled craftspeople, and the list goes on and on and on, especially if when you when you don't just look at Romans, but you look at 1 Corinthians and and 2 Thessalonians, and other places where Paul is writing about the various gifts that people are given for the purpose of serving the body of Christ. That doesn't just mean in church. It means wherever you are in life. We are all given gifts by God. And it's important to note that ministry is only one of the spiritual gifts that God gives. And it's not even at the top of the list. And that's why the word layperson, which pretty much describes most of the people watching online and in this room, that's kind of why the word layperson is problematic. Episcopal priest Frank Wade writes that the word lay is often used in church 
to demean people who aren't ordained ministers. And he's right. It happens. Just, you know, it's not just the church, as they said. Just think about how we use the word lay all the time. If someone is a lay electrician, it might be something that you would allow them to, you know, change a light bulb, but you don't want them anywhere near the high voltage. If a person is labeled a lay plumber, you might, you know, let them clean out the toilet or something like that, but you don't want them anywhere near getting involved in the plumbing in the whole house or in the whole neighborhood. Because usually being a lay person means you're an amateur. So when we ask a doctor to express her diagnosis in terms a lay person can understand, we're acknowledging that when it comes to medicine, the rest of us are pretty much idiots. But that is not what the word lay means at all. doesn't mean amateur. Lay comes from a Greek word, laos, or laos, which means people. It just means people. All of us are laos. We are all people. That's who we are, the people of God who are called to use whatever gifts we've been given to do the work of God. And then Paul calls us transformed as followers of Jesus. And so it follows that because we've been transformed, we are called to be transformers too. Now, in electrical engineering, a transformer transfers energy from one circuit to another, often involving a change in voltage, current, phase, Don't get me started because I don't know anything about electricity myself. So I'm constantly thanking God for electricians. Anyway, the same is true for you and me. We are made and gifted to be transformers for God. Wherever we work, whatever we do, whether or not we get paid for it, it doesn't matter. We are called to transfer God's energy to the world. A guy named Desmond Grant found a way to use his God-given gifts by selling cleaning products. Doesn't sound all that glamorous, but it is necessary when you think about it. And as he puts it, people are dirty, 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 dirty. You can walk into any kind of store and see Dirt all over the place. I was in a flower shop this morning. Boy, there were stains all over the carpets, their tile floors, their windows, mold on the stainless steel around the windows. I'm a clean person myself, and I enjoyed cleaning that place. You can hear the joy in what he's saying. You can hear the passion he has about selling cleaning products that help people. And that's how God created all of us to be, to find and to get caught up in the particular kind of work that suits our gifts. But you know, as great as that sounds, it's only part of what what gives labor, especially paid labor, its core dignity and value. 
Because the truth is that the work God calls you to in life isn't just what you like to do. The, God, the job that God calls you and me to do is also linked to God's own creative labor of love and mercy and reconciliation and salvation. So I put a quote on the cover of the bulletin, which is kind of long. I've used it before. It's from Frederick Beekner. You can uh, read it later. <laughs> because I'm not going to go through the whole thing right now, but it's well worth reading and pondering, just like that essay I told you about before. Think about what he says, but it boils down to this. What he writes is that your vocation or your calling in life is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Your vocation in life is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Now, of course, it's never going to be exactly clear the first time you think about something, you know, how it does those two things. There's a spectrum, right? There are jobs that sort of are more meeting your giftedness, and there are jobs that are sort of more meeting the world's needs. The point is to think about it. To ponder it. What is it that you're doing that is utilizing your gifts and serving a higher purpose? So, in that sense, almost any, any kind of work, any kind of job can fit the bill. As long as your own joys and gifts are connected to meeting human needs. So, when I say that, I have to be very clear that uh, that doesn't mean that meeting any perceived need or hunger that some human being tells you that they have is going to cut it, right? I mean, we want to rule out things like dealing drugs or human trafficking or being a terrorist as jobs that are sanctified by God. You get the picture. The point is this. Work that has value, whether it's sweeping a street or holding on to a baby because you're, you're a mom or a dad or a child care worker, or preaching a sermon, whatever it is. Work that has value is not just about making money or propping up your self-esteem in the eyes of others. It's being able to experience the joy of using your gifts to help other people and to honor God. There's an old story, a guy who approaches three bricklayers one day, and he goes up to the first bricklayer and he says, hey, what are you doing? And the bricklayer, in kind of an annoyed voice, says, well, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm laying bricks. And so he walks over to the second bricklayer and he asks him, what are you doing? And the guy says, oh, I'm making a living. And then the guy walks over to the third bricklayer, and he asks him the same question, what are you doing? And the man looks up at him, and he smiles, and he says, I'm building a cathedral. In her essay, Why Work?, Dorothy Sayers wrote, Work is not primarily a thing one does to live. 
It is the thing one lives to do. So on this Labor Day weekend, I encourage you to think about what it is that you do that makes life worth living. Not necessarily just what you might do to make a living. What is it that you do that makes your life and other people's lives worth living? And remember that you are one of God's transformers. That's what is good and acceptable and perfect about you. Paul says that he means it. Now, of course, nobody's always going to feel or be good and acceptable and perfect all the time. But when you use your gifts to serve others, however you do it, you are working with God. You're doing what you were created to do. You're being who you were made to be, a a circuit for divine power that changes and saves and creates the world. In Jesus' name, amen.